Let me pray. Father, we give you praise that you were willing to send your son to live on this broken earth, to live a perfect life, but to die for sinners like us. And we confess that we are in need. People in need of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we also confess that even as people who know you, we're often people who venture away from your covering, from your grace. And yet we can come back. We thank you for the work of the Spirit in our lives. We thank you that you're a God who holds out his hand to us to come. We pray for our time and your word today, that it would be a reminder of your grace in our lives. It would be a reminder of what we're supposed to do with our lives. We love you and thank you for your word and time together to unpack it in Jesus' name, amen. I've got a question for you to begin with this morning. Who in your life first showed you the truth and beauty of the gospel? I want you to think about that just for a minute. Who in your life first showed you the truth and the beauty of the gospel? There's probably a lot of answers in this room that might start with a parent who shared with you the gospel of Jesus Christ or a sibling. Maybe that wasn't your story. Maybe you grew up in a home that you didn't learn anything about Jesus Or maybe you grew up in a home that even you look back and go, I learned some religious things, but I really wasn't clear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's your story? Think about that special place that the people that you've held in your your mind right now have in your journey. Think about how special it is that they were willing to walk toward you to open their mouth and share more about who Jesus is and what Jesus is has done on a cross for you. And maybe a follow-up question might go something like this. Have you been that kind of influence in someone else's life? Is there anyone that would put your name in that same blank to say it was you who showed them the truth and the beauty of the gospel of Christ? And maybe you say, hey, Pastor Seth, I'm not an evangelist. That's not my spiritual gift. That's, I'll leave that to the extroverts like Tom Morrison over here. He can talk to anybody. Love you, Tom. I'm an introvert, so, so I will just leave this verbal communication and the message of the gospel to those extroverts. Or maybe you say, off of Romans 9, even from last week, you say, well, I believe And God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty means that God ultimately chooses, so therefore I don't have to open my mouth at all. You know, I think God would say this to us. He would say, child, evangelist is a calling for all believers. And it's not just for those who may have more gifting than others. And to the introvert or extrovert to say, God might want to use you Maybe I'll use you in your weakness to where I am strong. Even being an introvert. 
And I can promise you he would say this. Most assuredly, God would say, I certainly choose and I'm sovereign over salvation. But maybe you need to think, maybe that's me introducing the sarcasm to it. Maybe you need to think that I might just want to use you as an instrument and a vessel of my sovereign plans and purposes in people's lives that they might believe also. You see, we have a gospel responsibility to live on God's mission. That's what Romans chapter 10 is going to remind us of. We need to have a heart for the lost. We need to have a conviction about the necessity of the gospel message that causes us to walk with our feet and open our mouths toward a lost world. And I would stake the claim that we have a responsibility. And you know you love that word, right? People love that word in our, in our world, responsibility. It's like broccoli instead of ice cream. We like the word privilege. We don't like the word responsibility. But God leaves us, even in his sovereign purposes and plans, he leaves us a responsibility. And I would suggest this morning that that responsibility and that job description and that mission that he's left us is more important than all the other secondary job descriptions that he's given you. Mother, father, student, teacher, lawyer, pastor, community group leader, deacon, elder. We have a responsibility, a gospel responsibility. And it's the most important thing in our lives. It's why Jesus has left us here. The Bible uses terms for believers in Jesus like this. You're an ambassador. You're a messenger. You're a herald. You're called to bear witness of Jesus. And it says other things like this. We're called to give an account for the hope that's within us. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Let me ask you a question about the people that God has put in your life. Who in your life has a passionate, adamant, religious belief that is completely opposite to the gospel? Maybe it's unbelief. Maybe it's a belief in the wrong things. Maybe it's a belief in themselves. Do you know anybody in your life like that? I hope you do. I hope there's people in your life that God has put in your life that are completely different. And they're fervent. They're zealous about it. How many of you want to stand up and go, hey, I can't wait to have a conversation with that person because it's not going to go so well? It's like nails down a chalkboard. I'm just going to avoid that conversation like the plague. Second, let me ask you this. Do you really believe with all of our 21st century sensibilities that it's necessary for people to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ to be saved. That their sincerity isn't quite enough. But there's a necessity, there's one way in which a person can know God. How does that fare with your 21st century sensibilities? Do you believe that message? And how many times have you said, I know I have. How many times have you said for a number of years, you know, it's just not yet the right time to have that conversation for years and years and years. Turn with me to Romans chapter, the end of chapter 9 and verse 30, and we're really going to be looking in 
chapter 10 today about gospel responsibilities that we have. And Romans 10 is really going to hit all these rubs that I just unpacked. Just in time for Christmas, by the way, where you, you get to see a lot of people that maybe don't know Jesus. And you get to tell them about the King. You know, it's interesting as you turn there in Romans 9 and 10, it's interesting that one of the, one of the things that people say when we come to a text like Romans 9 and we talk about the sovereignty of God, the election of God, how God chooses, how God brings people to himself, and how he's just, this is what we said last week, in that he is just, and he is also merciful because nobody's innocent. Nobody's innocent, so God either leaves people for justice, or he mercifully pulls them out, and he is free to do as he pleases. And he calls people of all kinds of different races and all kinds of different backgrounds to his family. It's so interesting to me that we're in a text on God's sovereignty, and the beginning of that text is Paul saying, I want the people of my country to believe in Jesus, and the first thing you see here in the middle of this text is the same thing. So this idea that a belief in God's sovereignty, even in salvation, means that what do we do about sharing the gospel with anybody? Paul is adamant about sharing the gospel with whoever. The people that come into your life, it doesn't, those aren't two polar opposite things. I want to show you three gospel responsibilities this morning that we have. I want you to see Paul's heart for the lost, his conviction about the necessity of the gospel that produces something in us, action in us. So if you don't mind standing this morning, I know we've been standing and sitting down, but I'm going to read this chapter, so maybe this helps us. Romans chapter 9, verse 30, and I'll read through chapter 10. We'll stand for God's word. Page 946 on the Bible next to you. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if they were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire, hear this, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." For Moses writes about this righteousness that is based not on the, law, on the law, that a person who does the commandment shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? But what does it say? The word is near, but in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that, it, that we proclaim, because if you confess, you know this verse, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have we not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and the words to the end of the world But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long. I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Would you grab a seat? Three gospel responsibilities that we have. First, I want to show you the heart of an evangelist. Here's your first gospel responsibility. We're called to live with a gospel burden. A gospel burden for the lost, including those who fervently pursue the completely wrong path. Maybe you felt okay about pursuing people that are lost, but when I added including people who are pursuing the fervently, zealously pursuing the wrong path. You're like, I don't know. I don't really like to interact with those kind of people. But look at it. This is what we see in verse 30 in chapter 9. And verse 30 through 33, what he does there, if you're looking at it, he's contrasting the Gentiles to the Jews. And he says, hey, the Gentiles weren't looking, but they had faith in me. But the Jews, they were busybodies. They were busy working through the law for for salvation and what it did result in. There's no faith. Faith works question that we've already seen. Do you see the irony in that? That here are people who have the promises of God, who've been given the law, who have a heritage, a godly heritage, and they are busybodies pursuing the law to save them. And yet there are people that are far off that were not pursuing all these works but have had faith in Christ, and they have drawn near. You ever been there, maybe with your kid or somebody with you, where you use the phrase, you're trying too hard? Maybe it's a social awkward situation, or maybe it's sports. You're just trying too hard. That is literally true of the Jews here. They're just trying too hard. In their pride, they're trying too hard to get to their God through their own means instead of Christ, who fulfilled, do you see it in the text? Who fulfilled, he was the end of the law. It's as though he's saying, hey, you can clock out. You don't have to keep working. Christ fulfilled the law. He's the end of the law. Believe in him. They were trying too hard. And then you come down to verses one through four, and again, just like the beginning of chapter nine, you see Paul's burden. Even though he's called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, who's he burdened for? He's burdened for his own heritage, his own kinsmen, as he said in chapter 9, that there is a gospel burden for the lost, people who have completely gone the wrong way, 
in the opposite direction. He comes back to his heart for the lost after he speaks of the sovereignty of God. But what kind of lost? Look at the text. Look at what it says. It says that they are zealous. These are sincere people. Okay? They are fervent in what they believe, but they're heading the complete wrong way. Paul would know because most of his life up to the point where he met Jesus on Damascus Road was pursuing the same thing. That's his background. And yet what he's willing to do is go after his own people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to put Christ in front of them to much cost to himself. I want you to think about the culture that we live in. There's a lot of passionate people in our world. A lot of passionate people, a lot of sincere people in our pluralistic world. And what often happens is we say, well, they're sincere, therefore whatever they believe is good for them. It may not be good for you, but it's sincere or it's passionate. See, sincerity though doesn't, it's, sincerity sells, but it surely doesn't save. Passion certainly persuades people, but there's no pardon in passion alone. There's a gospel burden for the lost that is fueled by the person of Christ and belief in Christ. I want you to look at what Jesus says about the people of his day in Matthew chapter 9. I want you to see his compassion for people who are sheep without a shepherd. Matthew chapter 9 says this about the harvest being plentiful and the laborers few. Listen to this. And Jesus went throughout this, all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. That's where Jews hung out. And proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, these are Jewish crowds who believe in the law, who are pursuing the law as a way of salvation. What, did he, what does it say? Did he discard them? Did he say, hey, you're completely going the wrong way? He said, no, I have compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And you know what Jesus does next? He raises up these disciples and he sends them out. He sends them out to the ripe harvest of people that need the gospel of Christ? Are you burdened for the lost people around you? See, Paul has this heart of an evangelist to not only take the people that are cleaned up, but take the people who are pursuing the wrong direction. The people who were spitting at him in his face and persecuting him. People he likely didn't like that much at that point. That are pursuing the complete opposite direction of what they should pursue. There's a guy named Jim Marshall. He played in the NFL for 20 years. He played for the Minnesota Vikings. He played in the 60s and the 70s. He was a great defensive lineman. He has an NFL record, 28 fumble recoveries to his name. But on one of those fumble recoveries in 1964 against the San Francisco 49ers, he picks up the ball and he runs all the way into the end zone, 60 yards for a touchdown. For the wrong team. And you see his own players in the video, because there was still, there was video. I'm sure he doesn't want there to be video in 64, but there is. 
And these guys are yelling at him to come back, come back. And all the Niners fans and all the Niners players are patting him on the back. He comes into the end zone and he throws the ball up in the air in celebration. And the 49ers are coming up to him and clapping in his face. There was no taunting penalties, I don't think, back then. And he was joyous and then he was, you see him hunched over like that. You know, that day earned him a number of things. A nickname called Wrong Way Marshall. And in the NFL's top 10 worst plays of all time, he makes number five. Poor guy. Have you ever done something that you thought was the right thing? But it was wrong. It was the wrong way. And you celebrated it. And later to learn, it was completely wrong. Completely opposite of what you should have done. Paul is saying here about Israel that you're running the wrong way. Can I ask you this morning, are you running the wrong way? Is there anything other than belief in Christ alone, by faith alone, for salvation? You're running the wrong way. And let me ask the rest of you here. Are you burdened for lost people who think they are headed in the right way, but they are completely lost? Are you willing to run next to them and redirect them in the right way? To turn and come the right way? Or are they so abhorrent to you because they've offended you in their unbelief, by the way, where they don't have the Spirit of God, they're just dead to you. That you don't run after them. You just stay right where you're at. Do you have a gospel burden for lost people, even those who are zealous for beliefs that are completely contrary to yours? This is why God has left us. We compassionate like Jesus for the loss, remembering we were once lost. Well, it's one thing to move to the loss from a heartfelt desire, but what kind of biblical conviction do we need to move toward the lost with? This is what you see in the next few verses there from verses 5 through 13. Look at it there with me. And particularly in verse 9 through 13, I want to hone in there. Look at verse 9 through 13. We know this passage, but I want to unpack it and understand it well. If you confess with your mouth, here's the gospel message really clear. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So so really, the gospel involves three things. And belief in the gospel involves three things. It involves a turning or a repentance. That's the idea of confession, that you're confessing to God of your, your sins, When I came to faith in 1995, I remember sitting at my bed and reflecting on my life and saying, God, save me. I confess that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior. And I surrender my life to you. It's not the words that I said. It wasn't the prayer that I said. The emphasis here isn't on just the words, but it's the heart. It's that there is a turning There's a confession of sin. There's a trusting in the finished 
work of Christ. That's what he's saying here when he says, when he, in, in the second part, believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead. That you will be saved, for with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The implication is, if you reject him, you will be put to shame. Didn't we just get out of a chapter where we talked about God's sovereignty over salvation, that God chooses to call people to himself, but here it seems really like we have a responsibility to believe? That's exactly what's happening here. Those two things aren't contrary to one another in God's word, and God's economy. They're both true, that there is a responsibility to believe. So there's repentance, there's trust, not just intellectual belief, but trust in what Christ has done. There's a surrender that Christ is Lord of all, like all of your life, not just a window of your life, that he is Lord of all. So God is sovereign and he's calling you, but he holds us accountable. He's just to hold us also accountable. If we reject him, it's on us. And you're going, I don't know how all that works together. There's some mystery in that, but he holds us accountable for belief in him and rejection. I want to show you a couple passages to flush that out a little bit because Jesus says it. You know, in the Gospels, you see Jesus saying, no one comes to me unless the Father draws. And if they come to me, because the Father's drawing, then they're mine. They won't leave. So there's that. And then there's also Jesus saying things like this in John chapter 8. I want you to listen to this and the responsibility that we have not to reject Christ, the offer of Christ. Look at it. Why do you not understand what I say? He's talking to dissenters, people who don't believe in him. That would have been a great time for Jesus to say this. Well, the Father just hasn't chosen you, so that's why. He asks the question. He answers it, but it's not that answer. Why do you not understand what I say? Here's Jesus' answer. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. It's because you or of the father, the devil. Jesus didn't play around. And your will, your will is to do your father's desires. Who does Jesus hold accountable for their actions of rejection? He holds the people accountable for the rejection of himself. You see it as well in John chapter 5. This is important. Or John chapter 4. Excuse me. Five, I'm somewhere in here. John chapter five, he's, he's dealing again with people who don't believe. He says, yet you refuse, verse 40, to come to me that you may have life. And so you see both of these things in scripture. You see the human responsibility to not reject Jesus. And you see God sovereign over all things. Yes, both of those things are true. But What Paul's getting at is this, and here's your second idea. Here's your gospel responsibility. Your second one is this, to embrace the necessity of believing in Christ alone for salvation. This is the clear teaching of this text. It's a necessity. And I've talked a little bit about inwardly and personally what that means, that we're called to believe in Christ and not reject him. But there's also an external message for us as it relates to the rest of the world, 
particularly as believers in Jesus. Do you believe that message is true when you talk to the person that doesn't yet know Jesus? Or does it offend, as I said earlier, your 21st century sensibilities to believe the necessities of faith alone and Christ alone? Or do you have this grounded conviction like you see here with Paul? Do you have a grounded conviction that it's necessary and it's the most gracious, loving thing that God could ever do for you? To show you his one and only begotten son. That whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. What a gracious offer that is from God to send his only son for you and for me. Man, it's encouraging as a church to, to look at you, especially in the last couple of years, and all the crazy that's happened in our world, and to see a people who are not capitulating, not conflating, but believing in the truth of the gospel still, that you're standing firm, not with your boxing gloves on, but with a willingness to get your hands dirty and to show both truth and grace to people, to put the gospel in front of people. That's a neat thing. But what happens when you take this deep conviction, this deep conviction and the truth of the gospel and the necessity of the gospel, and you put it together with a burden for lost people, what should be the result? That's what you see in the next section here in verse 14 through 21. In verse 14 through 21, I would say it this way. We've got to live with an urgency to share Christ. That's what's produced with a biblical conviction of the gospel and a burden for the lost. Action, where our feet move toward the lost and our mouth speaks. That's the result. And if you're looking at this text, you see this chain of questioning. Look at it. Verse 14. How will you call on him? It's kind of like this reverse chain. How will you call on him who have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to fear, hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? So it kind of goes from the end backward. We've got to be sent people. We've got to go. We've got to share and preach to people so that they hear the gospel, the word of Christ, and believe. That message has to come out. Yes, God is sovereign, but he wants to use you as a vessel and to be a witness. That's his sovereign plan and purpose, for you to be a witness for him. And Paul shows this in all these different texts. You see these quotes here in Isaiah 52, 53, Psalm 19. These are quotes from the Old Testament that Paul uses. Paul knows the word, by the way, just a side note. So when he's trying to make a point, he, he knows the word so well that it just comes out. That we know the word so well that we understand our responsibility. And what did they hear? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing hearing through the word of Christ. 
It's the word of Christ that changes hearts. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 4, if you want to turn there. John chapter 4, verses 35 through 37, Jesus is speaking about urgency, the urgency of the message, and he says this, do you not say there there are four months, then comes the harvest? Think this agrarian society and waiting on a harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. He's not speaking about the fields, the literal fields. He's speaking about people coming to know himself, to go and share Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal lives, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. He's talking about urgency. That there's people who need to know the truth of Christ. I don't know if you know much about harvest time. I don't know a ton even though I grew up on a ranch, I know I use that a lot, but it just, it's just it's easy with first century stuff. But my dad, we, we had cattle. And so every year, every spring, late spring, early summer, uh, there was a harvest. We had two hay fields, actually three, f- two 50-acre hay fields to take care of our, our cattle during the year, especially in the winter when we needed hay so we didn't have to go buy it. So he would plant it, he would ask God to bless it with rain. So we prayed a lot for rain on the ranch. The hay would grow most years. And in spring, we would harvest it. And we didn't own a combine, so my dad would rent a combine. But there were a couple days in May or June when harvest time came, I didn't see my dad. You know why? Because there was an urgency. There was an urgency to get the hay out of the ground, to take the harvest. That's the kind of urgency that we ought to have about being a people that are putting Jesus in front of others. That these beautiful feet walk toward as messengers, the lost. Maybe that's just next door. Maybe that's down the road. Maybe that's Christmas with family. And open our mouths and share the gospel with people. Can I ask you a question? What's the most urgent thing in your life? What's the most urgent thing in your daytime? Is there any urgency in you to be a gospel witness? to people who are lost around you. There's something else there's oftentimes that we come to every few years, two years and four years, election. What do we do during elections? We let everyone know where we stand, if we stand somewhere, when there's election. We got t-shirts, we got yard signs, we got bumper stickers. We do the same thing with sports teams. You got any today? All right. We let everybody know, Baylor. There you are. We make it clear who we stand for. But there's some people during elections, you don't know. They don't make it clear about anything. They're not engaged. And sometimes that's not a bad thing. (laughs) Even outside of election time, we have flags and banners and T-shirts that are still waving. Right? You just come down here on 1488. Anyway. (laughs) 
I'm trying to understand. Somebody's making money. I don't know where I'm going now. Man, we know what we stand for. The people know that you stand for Jesus. Not in some boxing glove way, but they know where you stand. Here's my fear, and I'm going to preach a little bit. Here's my fear in the last couple years for the church whose mission is evangelism, whose mission is the Great Commission. Here's my fear. My fear is that social activism has trumped evangelism. There's a place for social activism under the gospel. You can search history and see people who are motivated by the gospel of Jesus and engaged. Thomas Mueller, Charles Spurgeon, on and on and on. But it came out of the flow and understanding and belief and heart for evangelism and the gospel message to move forward. And I'm afraid Satan is sitting in hell right now, back in his chair, laughing at the church Because we seem to care more about activism, social activism, than we do about evangelism. Than we do about lost people. We only have so much capital, okay, with people, especially lost people. I know God does his thing sovereignly, but you only have so much capital. And so what are you putting in front of people? Is it your take on politics or injustice or nationalism or vaccines or mask, what are you putting in front of people? There's a place for activism, but the church is called, it has one mission, and it's evangelism and discipleship. So what are we doing? I'm watching the church of Jesus Christ all over the world crumble in social activism. I'm not saying there's not a place for it, but evangelism is our call. Sharing the gospel, gospel mission is our call. And you can pervert that message if you get off into too many other things. We need to be about the gospel of Jesus. We need to live with the urgency to share Christ. That's our message. That's our distinctive in the world. So it doesn't matter what side of the fence that you are on. I want you to consider that the gospel is central. The gospel is the central message that ought to be coming out that ought to be lived out, that ought to be posted on your social media stream. I'm going to get in trouble with everybody today. (laughs) But seriously, I can't think of a better time where the gospel ought to be central, where everybody's arguing about everything. Where do you put the gospel in the center of that and offer the balm of the truth of the gospel as the solution? It still is the power of God to save and to change. All right. As a family, as a church, are we invested in taking the gospel where it's not been and here where it has been to functionally get people unsaved from their works in the Christian culture? we got a lot of work to do. So how are we doing? I love, by the way, after I rant about ranting, um, I love how centered This church has stayed. In the midst of cultural chaos, how central you have stayed. And how little mess 
that as a pastor that I have had to deal with compared to other pastors that I know who are hurting bad. And people are leaving their churches. You have stayed about the gospel. That's our message. That's our mission. So let's live with an urgency. We have gospel responsibilities. Our heart needs to be burdened for the lost. We need to have a conviction of the truth of the gospel in Christ alone and faith alone. And we need to get to work. Our feet need to move toward the lost. Our mouths need to speak. Close with this. There's a story about two farmers. Farmer Dale and Farmer Pete. Neighbors, friends, competitors. They enjoyed competing with one another, farm to farm, family to family. The latest venture was to take two racehorses and race them. The problem is, Farmer Pete always won. He just won every competition, and so Farmer Dale had this thought. He had this thought that, I'm going to go get a jockey. I'm going to go get a professional jockey, and I'm going to win something. So he goes and gets this professional jockey, and the race starts, and Farmer Dale's jockey and horse are in the lead, and Farmer Dale's excited, and then something happens. The two horses collide, and they fall, and the jockeys fall off. Everybody's okay, and of course, the two farmers get up and say, get back on, finish the race. The jockey for Farmer Dale gets on his horse first and wins the race. And Farmer Pete's looking at Farmer Dale, who should be excited, and he's saying, why aren't you excited? He's got his hands in his face and his hands down here. And he's like, you should be excited. It's the first time you ever beat me. First time you ever beat me in anything. And Farmer Dale looks up and he says, my jockey got on the wrong horse. (laughs) Can I ask you this morning? Are you on the right horse? Have you confessed that Jesus is Lord? Have you believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? Think about that message. If you haven't gotten on the right horse. Because God all day holds out his hand And waits for you to come. Don't reject Christ. And many of you are on the right horse. You're on the right horse. But somehow in the race, at some point, you've turned that horse the wrong direction. And you've pursued some other path. Potentially. You know in horse races, you see the horses... And they have those blinkers on, those blinders. They have those so the horse keeps his eyes straight down the track. And he doesn't see to the side or behind him when he runs a race. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I need some blinkers. I need some blinders because I've pulled my horse in the wrong direction. Your call this morning is, church, is this. Live on God's mission. It's easy to get sidetracked, especially in the world we live in, so there is grace there. But we've got to be a people who are willing to live on God's mission. 
The way we do that is we have a heart for the lost, a burden for the lost. And if you don't have it, ask God to give it to you again. Maybe there's somebody in particular you're going, I really don't want to share the gospel with them. They have rubbed me long for way too long. How do you have a heart for the lost? And how do you have a conviction? Live on mission, but you got to have a conviction about the truth of the gospel and its power and what it can do, not only in your life, but other people's lives. And then there's got to be steps, action steps that come out of those two things where our feet move and our mouth move as well. Let's live on God's mission. God bless you. Let me pray.